we've got a project manager in software engineering who's also running for Congress up next on the K-12 Engineering Education Podcast. I'm Pius Wong. Today, my guest is Rick Kennedy, a project manager with a computer science background working in tech here in Texas. Rick is also a contender in politics. He's running for the U.S. House of Representatives, District 17, in the Democratic primary, and I spoke to this software engineer about why he's running. Rick Kennedy, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Could you, first of all, describe a little bit about who you are, a little bit of your engineering background and what you're doing today? Sure, you bet. And thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me on, Pius. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, my, uh, what I am at the moment is a Democratic candidate for United States Congress in the 17th district here in Texas. Um, but at the same time, I'm still working full-time, uh, as a project manager, managing, um, enterprise resource planning, uh, implementations and CRM, uh, customer resource management implementations for our, our customers. My deep background is in computer science. I've got a degree uh, in CS from Penn State University way back in 1984. uh, And it's been a 35 plus year career ever since in software development, software development management, culminating to where I am now, which is, is as a project manager for a small consulting firm. You have a very long professional history here. And I feel like the very first thing you said was a little bit different from your your past <laughs> history in engineering. So tell me a little bit about uh, this race that you're in. You're you're running for uh, U.S. House of Representatives District 17 here in Texas. What is that role, and why are you running as a candidate? Sure. the um, The role is to represent the people of the 17th district, which encompasses. A little slice of North Austin and Pflugerville and all the way out to Brazos County, so Bryan College Station, uh, all the way up to Waco and in the mm-hmm. far northeast corner, um, Freestone County. So it's about a 7,700, 7,800 square mile district, uh, about 750,000 or so residents in that district, as most of the congressional districts are. They're, they're all carved up according to population, uh, equal population sizes. Uh, and the job is to represent, to be the voice of those people to the federal government, to represent their um, their needs, their desires, to craft and submit and support legislation, to try to improve their quality of life, preserve their rights, etc., cetera, uh, as well as um, provide constituent services, which is helping people who need help uh, navigate the various federal government bureaucracies and services that are available. So if you're a veteran and you're having a hard time with the VA, you might come to your, or go to your Congress member's office uh, and help um, ask for help navigating that process. Or if you're you know, dealing with the IRS or any other government agency, um, you can go to your, your representative in Congress and ask for help. And so after your 35-year experience in engineering and project management, why do you want to be a representative now? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, that that is a um, uh, obviously a political decision based on um, my observation and my opinion that Congress has lost its way. Uh, there aren't enough folks in Congress who are focused on solving problems and improving the quality of life for the American people. Um, 
my opinion is Congress has become deeply divided and deeply dysfunctional, has walked away from many of its duties as outlined in the Constitution, and over the last 30 years or so especially has, has given up much of its power to the executive branch. And I believe it's time to get some pragmatic problem solvers in there, as well as to restore Congress to uh, being the co-equal branch of government that it was uh, originally meant to be. And I do want to ask you, of course, about politics, definitely related to education and engineering. But before I get into that, I want to branch off on something that you said. Uh, you wanted to get some practical problem solving into government. And I would say, as an engineer myself, some people could be skeptical these days of uh, engineers or scientists, especially, I think, um, in divided places like Texas. How do you see someone like yourself with this technical background uh, bringing more credibility to scientists, engineers, folks like uh, yourself or myself? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, you, you've got to have a varied skill set, right? Uh, you can't just be a technocrat to be successful. I believe you've got to have communication skills. You've got to be able to um, you've got to be able to reach out to the folks in your district and connect with them in person, face to face, to build that relationship and build that credibility. Now, of course, you can't connect one on one with 750,000 people, uh, but you've got to make yourself available, uh, and you've got to be able to essentially stick with the facts as we know them and try to advocate for positions based on net total benefit to the people of not only the district, but also the, the people of the United States and the future of the United States. So, you know, I, I use healthcare as, a, as an example of, of how I think we need to approach these issues. There are a lot of people who believe that healthcare is an inherent human right, and, and I'm with them. I believe healthcare is a human right, but there's a lot of people who may not believe that healthcare is a right. It's not called out in the Constitution specifically, for instance, and uh, there are a lot of people who interpret the Constitution uh, quite literally. So, you know, I don't try to convince people that healthcare is a human right if that's not already in their belief structure. When you go after somebody or when you try to confront somebody on their belief structure, you're immediately going to get pushback um, uh, with that approach. I'd, I'd rather come at it with a pragmatic approach and try to discuss how healthcare, uh, extending healthcare to all Americans is a net positive and will be, uh, will be a, is a good investment in our fellow Americans and the future of the country. Um, you know, it, it's very simple. Healthier kids make better students. Better students grow up to be more productive adults. Healthier adults are more productive in the workplace, uh, lose less work time, uh, less time out of work uh, due to illnesses. Every, if everybody was covered with health care, uh, we wouldn't suffer the huge costs that we suffer now with uh, uncompensated care, which is a huge problem in our rural areas. So I try to, I, again, try to find some sort of a common ground, a common approach to, to have discussions with people. Um, and build off that that relationship and commonality. And I guess you've had plenty of experience now traveling across this big district, talking to these people. You think people respond to that approach? Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, I don't have a, a focus group results or anything like that. I have nothing but anecdotal experiences. Um, but my experiences are that even, and I just had this experience in the last seven, seven days or so, somewhere in the last week. It's been a flurry of activity. I had a discussion with uh, a a ardent Donald Trump supporter with the Make America Great Again hat on, and we came almost to instant agreement on 
the dysfunction and division uh, in Congress and what that is doing to the American people. And we could branch from there into discussions on healthcare or immigration or education or, or whatever other issues. Now, we, of course, depart uh, at some point, at certain points on uh, what we think the solutions to the problems might be. Right. But at least we started from a common ground. Hmm. Uh, one kind of philosophical question. Do you think that as engineers, we want to see results kind of immediately and concretely? And if so, I mean, how does that square with political results? Because I feel like that takes so much effort. It's harder to affect successful change in politics than it is in engineering. I would agree with that. Um, I would agree that it, A, it's it's much harder. And B, you know, in the engineering world, as you say, we want to lay out a we want to lay out a plan. We want to determine a solution. We want to lay out a plan. We want to see results in three months, six months, two years, whatever the the scope of the project might encompass. And in some ways, I I feel one of our problems is politicians are are looking for exactly the same thing, and they're making trade offs these days, based on providing instantaneous results. Um, and maybe forfeiting or mortgaging um, future uh, future challenges and future issues. The the uh, again the issue or the the example I like to use is tax cuts. Right, mm -hmm. tax cuts give us all an instant uh, instant gratification, right. instant benefit. But if we're rolling up a deficit and an accumulated debt that is going to impact our children and our great grandchildren. What we're doing is 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 mortgaging the future for instant gratification today. So politics actually has to, you have to turn o over. You've got to flip that uh, scenario. And you know my argument is people in the federal government, especially where policy changes take uh, they're they're big and they take a long time to take effect and they take even longer for us to understand what the implications, maybe the unexpected consequences of those decisions might be. We need to be looking out not to the next election cycle, but we need to be looking at generations. We need to be looking at what the United States is going to look like 40, 50, 60 years from now, not necessarily just in 2020, 2022, 2024 on an election cycle basis. Hmm. I'm sure some of your motivation for that, of course, is your own children as well. You've got children here in Texas. Uh, I wanted to ask you about education. What do you think some of the problems, the big problems are here in Texas facing children and their education? You already mentioned keeping them healthy with health care, but are there other educational issues that you think need to be addressed in this election cycle? Yeah, the, I think the, the biggest education challenge that we face here in the state of Texas is the willingness to fund it and the willingness to invest uh, in the education of our kids. Uh, Texas is, uh, we're not at the bottom of the dollars per pupil spending in the country, but we're fairly close. I think mm -hmm. we're about 40th at this point. And, uh, you know, I, I think we need to change the attitude of how we approach and what how we look at education especially here in Texas, we uh, appear to look at education and public education specifically as a burden on the taxpayer rather than as an investment uh, in, in the future, both the, both the kids of today, but the, 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 the future of our economy and our ability to continue as a nation to be the world's pre preeminent economic superpower. Uh, if we don't have an educated workforce that's capable of doing the jobs of the 21st century, uh, the rest of the world will catch up and go by us. Uh, and I, I don't think we're going to be happy with that result. And yet we don't seem to be willing to buckle down and understand that dollars invested today in, say, pre-K or, you know, in elementary education 
aren't going to manifest themselves as a return on that investment into society in general for 20 years or so, but we really need to be making those investments. So can you clarify for me a little bit about how like your ideas for for funding public education better? I understand that public education is funded with a mix of local taxes and then state. And then is there a federal angle to this that you as a congressional representative could affect? Yeah, there, there is a federal angle to it. Um, about 90% of Texas education is funded by state and local funding, and only about 10% um, comes from the federal government. And the, the majority of that is in Title I funding uh, for low-income schools. And at the federal level, what we really need to do is make, you know, first and foremost, we have to play defense. We have to make sure that that Title I funding uh, is not impacted, again, by the various forces that are in play at the federal level that much like the state level, just want to do nothing but cut, cut, cut. Mm -hmm. Uh, And um, we need to preserve that funding, especially for, uh, again, especially since most of it is for uh, economically challenged areas. These are the, these are the school districts that are hurting the most right here in this, in the middle of the 17th district uh, in Falls County, we have Marlin independent schools district and Marlin has just uh, once again been threatened with losing threatened with losing its accreditation uh, because it hasn't met its testing standards mm-hmm. now for literally for 10 years in a row um, and my question there is what can we do obviously i i believe at the federal level there should be emergency funds available to bolster a school system like that um, because those kids really don't have much of an alternative. It, there are no private schools in Falls County. It's not like they can go to a private school. Right. Um, a charter school might be a uh, an alternative, but you know, charter schools come along with more funding, which is just a mystery to me too, right? If there's more funding available for a charter school, then why isn't there more funding available to bolster that public school? Hmm. One of the other issues that I know that you are valuing and your campaign is valuing is education for the really young, pre-K education. Uh, what are your opinions on pre-K education and its accessibility in Texas? As you say, I advocate for universal access to pre-K, not only in Texas, but across the country. And that is just based on my philosophy that education is a vital um, uh, investment that we need to be making in our future. And the simple fact that study after study after study supports the the fact that every dollar invested in pre-K um, yields two to four dollars in benefit to society throughout the rest of that child's life. So, from an investments perspective, it's a, it's a no-brainer, mm-hmm. um, and it's also a universal uh, benefit, um, a universal program. I know the presidential candidates like to talk quite a bit about free college or debt-free college, um, but the simple fact is, we aren't all we don't all go to college, and we won't all go to college. It's not necessary for all jobs for for people to to go to college. Um, but we do all go to first grade and uh, getting these kids into a a more formalized program uh, and getting to kids earlier, leveling up their reading skills, leveling up their basic skills so that they can enter first grade on a more uniform and more com- uh, competitive basis. Uh, again, the the studies show that this provides return on investment throughout the rest of that kid's life. Um, it has to be obviously, you know, there's there's a great deal of controversy perhaps around uh, universal pre-K. Um, the opposite side of that argument is that, hey, those early years are for the parents 
And we can still allow those early years to be for the parents as well. It doesn't need to be a mandatory enrollment. If the parents choose to keep their kids out of pre-K, they certainly can. But I believe that we have to make it or it would be a net benefit to make it available to everybody. You started talking about higher education or college as well. I, I definitely want to ask about that in a second, but just mm -hmm. continuing on universal pre-K, the classic counter argument or, or I guess argument against that is maybe they don't care about the studies that you say, saying that this is an investment. Maybe people are just saying we don't have enough money to fund universal pre-K now. I think that well, you're running as in the Democratic primary. I think the Republican candidates for the representative in District 17, they they would say, how do we fund this? How would you answer that? How would you respond to that? Yeah, sure. I would, I would repeal probably many of the components of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017 mm -hmm. that, you know, here we are two years down the road and it, it is clear that that was, that was a, a tax cut that benefited the corporations and the upper one percent of our uh, of our uh, of our citizenship far more than it benefited the working and the middle classes, uh, and again has blown a trillion dollar hole in in our in, in our in our budget. And the money is there if we come to grips with the fact that we are mortgaging not only, again, these kids' future, but the future of our country by not investing in these places. Um, yeah, it, it, it's an argument that we don't have the funds now to do it. Well, you know, we, you know there's, there is money out there. Let's, out, let's take a look at how we're spending that money, where we can reallocate that money, uh, and where we can recover revenue if and when we have to, because, again, it comes down to investing in the future. We either make these investments or we don't. And um, uh, anybody who's not willing to make these investments doesn't have, I believe, the foresight to, again, project out what this country is going to look like 30, 40, 50 years from now. And as a side question related to that, as you've talked to your uh, neighbors in, in this district, uh, District 17, does this message about taxes or raising taxes essentially on the rich, does that resonate with people around here? Across the board. And it doesn't even, doesn't even matter what county you're in, whether it's a red county or a blue county, um, what neighborhood you're in, you get a universal, po universally positive response when you talk about uh, raising revenue by raising taxes on corporations or, uh, or the upper 1% of wage earners in the country. Uh, that doesn't necessarily translate to the same ease <laughs> once you get into Congress and, sure. and actually enacting legislation to make it happen. Um, but um, there are other forces at play in that arena. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about higher education. I know you already said, you started saying that, yeah, not everybody goes to college. And it's it's interesting you say that. A lot of uh, K-12 teachers that I speak to, um, they'll say the same thing. Even if they're teaching engineering, if they're teaching STEM classes, they may love engineering. They love all these fields of study that require college, but they know that, hey, maybe college isn't for everyone. Um, what do you think about universal college? If you could repeat that opinion one more time. Well, you know, it's a matter of priorities. And while I, I am fully, you know, supportive of the theory that college should be free for everybody, it is a matter of where we prioritize uh, and, and put our money. Uh, and and what, what political capital we're willing to spend to make something happen and where we're willing to make it happen. I think 
getting funding, first of all, it's much more expensive, right? Free, free university for everybody is much more expensive, say, for instance, than, than free um, or, or universal pre-K. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a much bigger rock to push up, push up a much steeper hill uh, just from a political perspective. And again, you know, there's a significant portion of the of the population that will look at that as an elitist benefit rather than a universal benefit. I'm all for education uh, and education for education's sake. Uh, and we need to continue to support kids who are, are going to college who may be you know, economically not able to pay for it uh, themselves, uh, but we also need to sort of break the spiral that's going on right now with college and cost of college and, uh, and, co and college tuitions some of which I'm convinced is due to the fact that there's essentially unlimited federal money right now available to, uh, to fund uh, or for kids to borrow. Um, and that's driving up costs of tuition because there's no, there's no feedback loop there. You're talking about the federal student loan programs. Exactly. Exactly. So you, you would limit that. Yeah. I think we need to be making better value decisions there. Um, uh, you know, we've, the, we've, we've famously now have about $1.6 trillion of, of net student uh, loan debt. It's more than credit card debt. Uh, I think um, if we did one simple thing and made some of these loans uh, more easily discharged through bankruptcy, that would do a couple of things. Um, it would force uh, lending institutions to come to the table uh, with folks who are in trouble as a as a, um, a bona fide or, or to negotiate in, tr in good faith to actually bring that burden down for those individuals. But as well as would force some tighter underwriting standards in the front, in up front, and yeah, would limit what some people might be able to uh, borrow based on their prospective earnings, based on what their course of study might be. So potentially, maybe engineering students would have more access to funding. Is that what you mean? Uh, yeah, I think it would be proportional to what again what their what their expected career path might be able to yield for them um, going mm -hmm. forward. So, sure, if you're if you're going into engineering or or medicine, you know, and you're you're uh, you're likely to be able to take out more debt, just like anything else in life. The more the more future earnings that you can demonstrate to a lending in, in, um, lending institution the the more likely you are to be able to get a loan and um, or, or to be able to be, borrow even more um, if you're going to school for a career that might only you know net out pay thirty five thousand dollars a year after you graduate you're not going to be able to handle two hundred thousand dollars in accumulated debt once you get out and we shouldn't be putting our kids in that situation, and we are right now. We've spoken about future college students, basically. What about students who've already graduated from college and they have a lot of debt? What do you think about loan forgiveness for these people? Uh, I think we need a robust service-based loan forgiveness program. We have a theoretical service-based loan forgiveness program right now. Um, I think we need one that's actual, real, and implemented. Um, so say if you're going to go you know, take your degree in medicine and go um, become a general practitioner in Falls County, which at the moment has only one general practitioner. Um, we should incentivize that by, uh, you know, if you practice there for 10 years, we will forgive your student loans. If you go uh, and teach in a, a, an underserved school district, we will forgive your, your student loans. I'm, I'm a big fan of service-based loan forgiveness. If you went to school and you got your degree and you can reasonably pay off that loan, 
Um, we're going to ask you to pay off that loan. If you got a bachelor's degree over the course of your career, you're on average, you're going to make a million dollars more than somebody who doesn't have that degree. Uh, so we're going to ask you to to repay your debt to the to the taxpayers. But now we have to make it so that your payments aren't so high that you're unable to participate in the economy in other ways. And we have to make sure that interest rates are low enough, certainly so the federal government is not making money off of your debt. It should be a net zero or, or net even um, uh, transaction. And the the folks who are really hurt now, the folks who only went to school for part of the time and then something happened in their life. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they went to, you know, maybe they were pursuing a four-year bachelor degree and and actually heard this story just the other day, somebody pursuing a four-year bachelor degree and two and a half years into that, their father died and the father was the co-signer on their loan and they had to drop out of school. And now they're stuck with two and a half years worth of student loans and they do not have the degree to support a career that would help them pay that back. So there needs to be a some form of graduated forgiveness for folks who are truly in a jam, uh, who through no fault of their own uh, are in a situation that they can't work themselves out of. I personally think that a program like that, it it sounds great. It really does. I also feel like it, it's a little tricky to to define all the rules for how that would work, you know, because I, I can Hard, see how- Horribly complicated. Right. Like you already defined how we have a separate program for teachers today and a separate program for doctors, but you're talking about expanding it to a lot more professions um, and, and different schools might have different results. Like my community college that I teach at might have students who don't have the same annual salary when they graduate compared to the graduates of MIT or something. So if it's that tricky to develop a program, how can you develop that? Like what people, what what strategies can you bring on to figure out how to implement this so that it's a real practical thing? Yeah, I mean, it's it's the, none of these at the federal level, none of these problems are, are easy, right? We would have solved them already if they're easy. Right. Um, and you bring in teams of subject matter experts uh, and you work hard for a long time to craft legislation that you hope encompasses uh, or captures all the nuances and all the variants that you might have to deal with across, as you say, across not only uh, across geographies, across demographies, uh, across all the various um, variables that you're going to run into at the federal level. Then you have to be prepared to monitor, to measure, and to adjust as we go on. One of the things that really bothers me is this seeming notion that all legislation is going to be perfect kind of straight out of the box and that, you know, we never make a mistake and that we don't have to we don't have to continually revisit what um, what we're trying to do and shape or reshape what we're trying to do as evidence comes in and those unexpected inevitable unexpected consequences arise um, that we have to deal with uh, going forward. Um, you know, the Affordable Care Act is a is a very good example. We it was it was successful. It granted healthcare or expanded healthcare coverage to tens of millions of Americans who didn't have it before. Uh, but we're ten years into it, and there are some unexpected consequences. Costs are going up, deductibles are going up, uh, and it's time to revisit that and and address those issues. Uh, not to get too hypothetical or theoretical, but I do want to think about this 2020 election. I don't know necessarily what's going to happen in the future, but you are running as a Democrat. And let's say you are our congressional representative here in District 17. And let's say the Trump administration is still the same administration in power. I would assume that the education secretary, Betsy DeVos, would still 
you know, be in her position as well. What could you as a Democratic congressional representative do to oppose uh, DeVos's, I don't, I don't know how to phrase it, DeVos's lack of support for public education? Is there anything you can do? Yeah, there is. I mean, a lot of legislation is written such that the power to regulate gets transferred to whatever the um, um, the relevant department is in the executive branch. So Betsy DeVos has, has a great deal of power because basically Congress has granted her that power through legislation. We can tighten up legislation to take some of that power away. Uh, we can craft new legislation that doesn't leave power in the hands of the executive branch. But that makes the legislation even more complex and more difficult to actually to get through. And, you know, a, a lot depends on what happens in the Senate as well. Sure. Um, if, if the Senate doesn't support whatever the House is doing, if Mr. Trump is still in the White House, he, even at that point, if we m- maybe don't even have a veto proof majority, the only thing that we can do is to continue to advocate to vote for elected officials who are going to support your point of view, whatever that point of view might be. All right. I wanted to ask a little bit about some engineering related issues too. I know that sure. I was focusing on education, but hey, yep. as an as a software engineer, as a computer science guy, I think you might have some good opinions. Um, I know that one of your big issues in your campaign, especially in this rural district, is to provide more internet access. Uh, first of all, why is that even an issue um, much like um, 100 years ago when we passed the Rural Electrification Act, the issue then is the same as it is now. It, 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 isn't, um, it isn't commercially viable. It wasn't commercially viable back in the 1930s to string, uh, elect- to generate and, and wire rural America because it was too much of an investment and, they, and there was no, there wouldn't be a commercial return on investment that would justify that expense. So the federal government had to step in uh, and bring electricity to to every corner of the country. Much the same today, it is not commercially viable to extend universal high-speed internet access to every corner uh, of central Texas or the country. Uh, I still, when I drive across the, um, the district these days, almost every day, um, I lose cell phone coverage for extended periods of time because it's not even commercially viable to deploy cell phone coverage uh, in these areas. So a lot of the district does not have access to high-speed internet, and it really is critical to being able to attract you know, 21st century jobs to the district. You've got to have 21st century infrastructure, uh, and we don't have it now. And, and, the, and the impacts are obvious. Um, the presidential candidates, again, they like to talk about uh, income inequality, and I, I characterize what they talk about as vertical income inequality, the, the, the upper 5 or 10% sort of racing away from the bottom 90%. I like to talk about horizontal income inequality, and that's the, the, the racing or, or the, the falling behind of our rural counties and our, our small towns falling behind and not participating in the 21st century economy that the bigger areas like Austin and Bryan College Station and Waco are certainly participating in. And it's a, it's a huge rift in our society. What would more access to the internet in rural counties or just everywhere, what would that mean for uh, your district? Well, it gives local um, counties and towns a shot at attracting 21st century business. It also gives them access to um, uh, the ability to access remote services 
maybe you need a, 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 a cardiologist or an ear, nose and throat doctor who isn't located in your, in your practice in say Rockdale, but you can access those services uh, remotely, say, you know, in Austin or Dallas or wherever that physician might actually be. Um, it requires high speed internet to, um, to access those services, uh, remote education, um, remote learning opportunities, all accentuated, all enhanced by having high speed internet capability uh, and remote work opportunities. I, I myself am probably the poster child for remote work. I have worked for a company located in Vancouver. I've worked for them for two years and I have literally never met any of my colleagues, nor have I met any of my clients. I do all of my work from my desktop right here in Austin. I'm talking in Austin too, so I'm definitely familiar with all the the tech opportunities here. Um, and it's funny you mentioned the remote medicine or telemedicine issue. I know that hospital closings are also an issue in uh, Texas. And do you think that's a legitimate possible solution for stuff like that? It is a possible solution. Um, we do have a, a rural healthcare crisis in America and right here in Texas and, and right here in, in the middle of the 17th district. Um, the, the hospitals in Milam County shut down at the end of 2018. They were economically no longer viable. Um, I do believe remote telemedicine is definitely a component, once again, of making these these rural areas a place where people want to live. This is a multidimensional problem. Um, I, when I talk about infrastructure for these communities to help them attract 21st century jobs, it's not just high-speed internet access. I, I break it down to three categories, connectivity, um, mobility, and uh, and utilities. So mobility, obviously, to be able to, to be able to move places, to go, to go access services that aren't physically located, that maybe you have to go, uh, you have to be physically located to access, um, and utilities. Um, you know, some of these towns have hundred, still have century-old water pipes in the ground, and their utility systems uh, are are not up to par. And you dovetail that in with just access to um, healthcare as well as having good, robust education systems. All of these things are components of making these towns and counties places where companies are going to want to locate and people are going to want to live. On another note uh, related to engineering political issues, I feel like after the Iowa caucuses, people have been paying a lot more attention to election security and the use of technology in voting. I'm just curious what your opinion is on if election security, if it's a priority. You talked about priorities. Is that a priority uh, in this election right now? And why or why not? It is a priority. Um, and you know, I believe one of our advantages um, to our system is that we actually don't hold national elections. We hold 50 state elections at the same time. Uh, and that makes it more difficult for somebody who's trying to actually, you know, hack into systems. Um, it makes it more challenging because every state has a different system. Every state, you know, it, it, it's different. You'd have to hack into 50 states, 50 different systems to to actually impact it. I think the bigger, the much bigger challenge that we face is not hacking into voter databases or, or voting machines themselves, although that is a concern and they do need to be protected. I think the bigger concerns that we have are, are misinformation and disinformation being spread across um, our social media environments uh, and influencing uh, how people are thinking and how they vote. How do you think we can tackle yeah. disinformation? I, I, I think a lot of it, uh, you know, I, I honestly think Twitter did a, a, a 
pretty decent job by throwing their hands up and saying, we don't know how to deal with this, so we're not going to take political advertising. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think the technology is there for us at this point to be able to, at scale, separate what is uh, who is a bona fide user um, from who might be, um, you know, a fake user, a troll, or or or, or even a foreign um, intelligence service trying to pose as somebody else and and um, and influence uh, our our public opinion. Uh, I I honestly don't have a good answer. That's the kind of yeah. thing that, and again, I'm you know. As you well know, engineering computer science is a very diverse field. Asking me to fix yeah. your cybersecurity problems like asking your podiatrist to give you a new heart valve, right? It's probably <laughs> I'm probably the wrong guy to go to, but I will hire the right guy <laughs> to right. make it happen. Um, I don't think any of us have good answers right now. You know, Facebook gets a lot of flack for that. I know you you singled out Twitter as as not accepting political funding. That was big news. I think Facebook is getting the opposite. The opposite attention for accepting political funding and also not not doing anything about if anyone is is lying, I guess, uh, or yes. sending political lies. And yet, I know that you and and every other politician kind of relies on Facebook for their campaigns. How do you square that? Um, we do rely on Facebook for the campaign, although we're not doing any advertising on Facebook. Um, mm. We do rely on it, however. Um, and the only way I can square it from my perspective is the same way. When people ask me about how I'm going to, and I'm air quoting here, fix divisiveness, right? How are you going to fix divisiveness? Uh, I can only control what I do, what I say, and my local area of influence. So I'm not going to participate in you know, any misinformation, disinformation. I'm not going to take advantage of the fact that Facebook isn't policing me. Uh, and I'm going to be as honest and truthful as I can be. And if I'm wrong about something, if I've got my facts wrong, I will certainly correct that. I can't control what other people are going to do, but I'm certainly not going to participate in it uh, because one of the basic premises of my campaign is what you see is what you get. You know, we're going to have honest communication both directions, a lawmaker to constituent and back again. Um, and I want everybody to be able to count on what I'm saying as being truthful and honest uh, and factual, at least given whatever the facts of the day might be. Hmm. All right, Rick, I know we've been talking more than the half hour that I promised, so I'll try yeah, to no wrap worries. up. This will be the last big question, I guess. What would be the number one most difficult political problem you're, you're thinking about right now? As an engineer, you're a problem solver. What's the number one most thorny, hairiest political problem that you're thinking about right now? Gerrymandering. Um, you know, fewer than 20% of our congressional districts uh, are considered to be competitive. Uh, and some of that is self-sorting, but a lot of that is gerrymandering as well. Um, and that leads to a very big problem in that representatives who are elected in those districts do not feel as though they are answerable to their constituents, to the voters. Um, the only voters that they're answerable to are the extreme wings of their base, uh, and they're under constant threat of being primaried, uh, either by somebody further to the left or further to the right of where they are. And so they, whatever they might think or whatever they, they might, you know, in their heart advocate, are forced further left or further right just to preserve their seat from, from their own party, never mind from, from the opposition party in a general election. And I believe that that has contributed a great deal to the divisiveness and dysfunction that we've seen in Congress. 
and um, and the gridlock that we see. And there is a bill out there at the moment. The House has passed it. It's called HR1. It's the We the People Act. And there are provisions in that bill that would require states to use nonpartisan citizen commissions to do redistricting rather than uh, leave it in the hands of obviously partisan state legislatures. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a bill that I would uh, I would support wholeheartedly. And not only that is because it's a big bill, it's probably unlikely to go anywhere. It's not certainly not going to go anywhere through the Senate. I believe gerrymandering is such a, an issue that I would break out those provisions into their own bill and try to get that through as opposed to having it a part of a big, you know, a, a big multidimensional bill. Okay. Well, how can people learn more about you? Best place to do to do that is to go to my website, um, www.rickkennedyforcongress.com. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter and you can find me on Instagram. And maybe in the future, you might even find me on TikTok, but we aren't quite there yet. <laughs> no, that'd be cool. That's where all the young folks are. Um, thank you for explaining all that. And I know that we're talking during the primaries. Uh, when can people vote for you if that's what they want to do? They could run out and vote for me right now for the next uh, hour and 15 minutes or so. Um, <laughs> we are in the middle of early voting. Early voting extends through Friday the 28th. Uh, and I encourage everybody to get out in an early vote um, to avoid any possible complications on election day, whether it's sick kids or a broken down car or something that might keep you from getting to the polls. But election day itself is March 3rd. All right. Here in Texas, of course. Here in Texas, yes. Yeah, but maybe we'll see you for the general election in November. I certainly hope so, Pius. Uh, it's certainly our intent to get there. All right. Thank you so much, Rick. All right. Thanks. Appreciate it. That was Rick Kennedy, software engineer and project manager and candidate for the U.S. House of Representatives, District 17. This podcast is sponsored by my studio, Pios Labs, and by the Engineer's Guide to Improv and Art Games, along with generous individual donors. Donate to the show on Patreon. Read transcripts and learn more about the show at the website, k12engineering.net. Stay tuned for our upcoming live show at South by Southwest and more news by following the K-12 Engineering Education Podcast on social media and by subscribing to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.